Brothers and sisters in Christ, this morning as our attention was drawn to the Apostles' Creed and our confession concerning God being the Creator and the one who has all things in his hands, we were reminded of the tension that that particular doctrine creates. We were also reminded of the fact that this is not an old question. This is a very modern and a very real question. After all, every day again, we in various ways are reminded of the seeming chaos of life. The news out of Florida, someone killing 50 people and injuring many more. Even now, we are anticipating a verdict in the trial of two men accused of murdering Tim Bosma. Even now, we're in a world where the realities of the fires in Fort McMurray are still being discovered. Even now, we're in a world filled with ISIS and violence and racism and so forth. Even now, we're in a world filled with the realities of cancer and mental illness and aging and so forth. There is an incredible amount of agony in this world. And then did you notice when we confess in, Lord's, in, in, in uh, Article 13 of the Belgic Confession, nothing happens without God's orderly arrangement. Really? Nothing happens without God's orderly arrangement. How can we have the audacity to confess something like that when everything seems to be so chaotic A Greek thinker by the name of Epicurus, who lived from 341 to 270 BC, whom we are introduced to by Article 13, and whom Paul uh, answered when he was in, uh, in Athens, taught that the physical world was all there was. The physical world is all there is. It has always existed, and it will last forever. Not only is there no creator, there is no God in charge of the universe to give life purpose. People simply lived and then died. And so while you're alive, you should seek to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Now he wasn't an atheist in the true sense of the word because he believed that the gods existed quite separately from this world and lived in absolute tranquility. Interesting. And if people wanted that sort of hassle-free existence that the gods had, then they too ought to live in tranquility, Epicurus said. How does one get to that particular transcendent, you know, to that world of hassle-free existence? Well, by being totally self-reliant, totally self-assured by saving oneself without any interference from beyond. Interesting, the self-realization movement and the New Age movements have revived that ancient way of thinking. Real peace, real comfort, they say, totally being able to, be, to achieve tranquility comes from believing totally in yourself comes from believing that you are the undisputed Lord of your life fitting somehow into the cosmic reality. God or the gods or whatever divine being that there may be has no control over anything. 
If there is a God or if there are gods, he said, then he's totally separated from this world, totally separated from reality, living in his own tranquility. So everything is left to you. So dig deep into yourself and you can control your own destiny. <laughs> well, the language of the Belgian Confession, Article 13, the very last paragraph, if you got it there in front of you, tells us rather quickly what we can do with that Epicurean kind of thinking. We reject the damnable error of the Epicureans who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. Strong language. Yes, but common language for the confessions of the 1500s. The writers use straightforward language which call the spade a spade and a heresy a heresy. And it's interesting that in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul also challenged the Epicureans. And the problem with Epicurean and New Age thinking is that it denies the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And the psalmist has some things to say about that. The Bible has some things to say about that. In, in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Those who deny God are fools, says the Bible, and the fate of fools is eternal separation from him. And yet, in spite of the Bible's challenge of Epicurean thought, and in spite of the Belgic Confession's challenge of this way of thinking, it's just listening to ourselves talk sometimes, we you almost get the idea like we, we're Epicurean, we, we agree with him. When we use such language as good luck or bad luck or testing fate, really we're using language which is foreign to the Bible. And such language actually denies the working of the Lord in history or in all of creation. Such language based on a way of thinking basically looks at life from a totally fatalistic perspective, thinking that whatever happens is either a result of a good stroke of luck or a bad stroke of luck. That's life. We shrug. We can do nothing about it. Life sure is dealing us a bad hand or, or giving us a bad shake. If only we play our cards right, we'll be okay. I think you recognize the terminology. It's all gambling terminology. The terminology that's foreign to the scriptures. It takes life, it views life and history as floating along rather aimlessly, following the winds of fate and que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. James, the Apostle James, warns us to be careful of what our tongues say because what we say comes from the heart. And if things, such things in our hearts, then we stand diametrically opposed to the Bible and to what we confess when we say that we believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. When we talk and think and live like everything just happens by chance, we are involved in something that Guido de Bray, the writer of the Belgian Confession, called a damnable error. And the Bible would back him up by clearly teaching in the passage from Acts 17, verse 28, that our lives, world history, and all that happens in this universe is not left up to the winds of fate or to as the dice roll. But in Him we live and move and have our being. 
In other words, everything, including all the horrible things of life, everything finds its place in the almighty hands of the sovereign God. And so what we experience, and this is a biblical way of looking at history, what we experience in this world is God's providence and not luck or chance. In fact, nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. That's what we confess. That's what the Bible teaches. Boy, that's hard to understand. It's hard to wrap our brains around. But it all flows from the basic confession that God is the creator of all things. As we learned in the Heidelberg Catechism, first we deal with the fact that God is the creator, and then we deal with providence, because there's still more to be said. Once, you see, he came to the seventh day and rested. That didn't mean that, that the Lord then went to sleep. But it meant that he rested from his creative work. My Father is working still, and I am working, Jesus said in John 5, verse 17. That's because once God had made it all, he still had to look after it all. God never will, nor does, the work desert the work of his hands, Psalm 138. For that matter, everything exists and continues to exist only because he upholds it. If God were to pull his hands back from this globe, it would cease to exist. The world is not like an alarm clock running on borrowed time. No, as one author put it, quote, moment by moment, every force in the universe, every spark of life in the world is upheld by the everlasting arms of our Father. Paul, preaching in the Areopagus, said concerning the one that they had labeled as the unknown God, I got news, I know him. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That is to say, the Lord upholds the natural laws of creation, such as the laws of gravity and inertia and so on. He's the one who waters the earth, as the psalmist puts it, makes plants and crops to grow. He's the one who has given people the know-how and the technology to use raw materials, to build, to learn, to heal, and to do all sorts of other things. He's the one who keeps the whole of the universe spinning and in working order. It all follows his orderly arrangement. He creates, he upholds, but besides all of that, he also governs it. And when we talk about God being the ruler, we mean that everything will serve his purposes. All evil, bad things will somehow, we don't know how, but God knows, be worked for good. Romans 8, 28. God's ruling this world means that all of history, or as the Heidelberg Catechism put it, as we noted this morning in Lord's Day 10, rain or drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, those are but some examples of which we could, many, we could add many more, such as mass killings and war and death and economic difficulties, destroyed relationships, abuse and so on. All these things are not a result of chance or luck, or the chips being down, or the stars being in a certain constellation. But all these things, both good and bad, find their place in his fatherly hand, and in some way they will all serve his purpose. 
Now, sometimes that's very clear for us to understand. We see it clearly. But sometimes we can't figure it out for the life of us. And, and it causes us incredible difficulties. With all the bad things happening, can we really confess nothing happens without God's orderly arrangement? Does God really rule? Where is God amidst the horror of a self-proclaimed ex executioner? Where was God amidst the fires that hit Fort McMurray? Where is God when a family member is seriously ill or taken away from us so unexpectedly? Those questions are very, very real, but in all of this, we must be very careful. The Belgian Confession cautions us not to go beyond the bounds of human understanding, not to go beyond the bounds of what is revealed in the, in the Bible. You see, but you see, the issue that's at stake in all of this is this. Is the God of the Bible the sovereign Lord, yes or no? Is the Lord of the Bible the creator, the king, yes or no? And the answer that the Bible gives and the answer that the confessions echo is a resounding yes. Does he as that creator, as that sustainer, have all things in his hands? And again, the answer is a resounding yes. If he is sovereign, if he indeed is who the Bible says he is, then he also has all things in his hands. Well, what about bad things, evil, drought, war, killings, illness, and so on? Are they in his hands? Yes. Well, then God is the author of sin. About that this morning too a little bit. The Belgian Confession hits that last logical question straight on. Declaring God, the Lord, to be the author of sin would be the logical conclusion to the sovereignty of God, at least in our minds. If he's got all things in his hands, if he's the ruler of all things, all these bad things come from him too. But the Belgian Confession says no, no. The Lord is neither the author of, nor can he be charged with the sins committed or the evil around them. God cannot be charged with the killings in Orlando. Evil and sin originated with Satan and people, not with God. God is by very nature the very opposite of sin and evil. He is good and he is perfect. But every sin and evil, even Satan himself, must submit to God. God holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. Can you understand all this? I don't have a hard time with this stuff. But let me give you an example of how this works that comes up in the title of the message. A number of years ago, I was privileged to travel to Beijing, China, and there come face to face with that large picture of Mao Zedong hanging over the gate of the Forbidden City in Tiananmen Square, square that also contains his mausoleum. <coughs> now Mao, for those of you who don't know, was one of China's brutal communist leaders that many would put exactly in the same category as Hitler, Stalin, and Pol Pot, all mass murderers and brutal dictators. But 
As Randy Elkhorn writes in his book, uh, Safely Home, which is a novel, by the way, based upon a lot of the writings of the Chinese church and a lot of the, um, uh, what is it, the Voice of the Martyrs, that kind of thing. It's a novel about Chinese Christians and the world in China. Uh, he writes in this book that God used Mao as a tool to build his church. I want to read a little bit from this book. Uh, this was a book that we had to read as part of our trip going to China before we went. And the part I'm going to read is a part of the ongoing conversation between an American Christian businessman who came to know the Lord by the name of Ben Fielding and a Chinese Christian imprisoned for his faith. The Chinese Christian's name was Quan. And they're talking to each other through the prison fence. So Ben Fielding is standing on this side of the prison fence and Quan is the prisoner inside the fence. And they get talking about Mao and about how God used Mao in China. Mao was a tool in the hands of Jesus to build his church, says Quan. And Ben stares at him incredulous. He says, look, I'm a Christian now, Quan, and I'm really trying to understand I just don't get what you're saying. Well, think, Ben Fielding. When Mao came to power, there were fewer than a million Christians in China, and those were divided. Many leaders were seduced by Western modernism, no longer believing God's word. The church needed out inside cleansing, and outside there was little interest in Jesus. But then came Mao. My parents told me how they put loudspeakers in the lampposts and the trees. Every morning they awoke to East is Red, a song about Mao being the great savior of the people. Mao was a usurper, a pretender, a small man who did a large evil. His broken promises left a void. This has been still the tens of millions of people who died. Quan, my own father died under Mao's boot. Yet, my dad used to say, Mao Zedong is China's greatest evangelist. He created a vacuum only Jesus could fill. Mao expelled all the missionaries and, the persecuted, and persecuted the church. But a half million Christians multiplied to perhaps 80 or 100 million today. And today, the church in China, as a matter of fact, is the largest Christian church in one country anywhere in the world. But at what cost, Quan? Who are we to speak of cost? God hated what Mao did, but he used it. We do not understand providence, but the Chinese say a good fortune may forebode a bad luck which, in, which may in turn disguise a good fortune. God works beneath the surface and around the corner and above the roof. We have a saying, no man should judge a painting when he can only see the back of the canvas. No man should judge a painting when he can only see the back of the canvas. But isn't it obvious things are out of control when you have madmen and dictators murdering people? Out of whose control? Ben Fielding's, Lee Kwan's, of course. 
But Jesus does not cower before strutting dictators. He does not bow before petty warlords like Mao and Stalin and Hitler. Mao is responsible for his evil. Mao could not thwart God. In a hundred ways, he prepared the way for the spread of the gospel like no missionary could. How? What do you mean? When Mao came to power, there was no road system. Missionaries who worked inland traveled for seven months. They lived on the backs of mules for the final weeks of their journey. When Mao built the roads, the church could reach to the same countryside in less than a week and on trains or buses, not mules. Ah, he built roads for his purposes, not the churches. That's what he thought. When he assumed power, China was divided by 300 languages and 1,000 dialects. But Mao signed a decree making Mandarin the official language. He required all business and education and public conversation to be in Mandarin. He ordered that the 47,000 pictorial characters be simplified so his red book could be small and easy to carry. And they were reduced to 1,500. Suddenly, God's word could be translated much more easily, and the whole nation could be reached with one translation. You've heard of Wycliffe Bible translators. They could not have done what Mao Zedong did for the church. Only 6% of the nation could read, so he ordered literacy training, and now nearly 90% can read, nearly all who live in the cities. And they are reading, and are they reading his red book? No. They're reading the words of Jesus, that is, whenever they can get, in, into, get it into their hands. Said Ben, you really believe the Lord is behind all of this? Of course. Mao intended it all for evil, but God intended it for good. Mao set himself up as a god, but he was but an errand boy for the true God. As surely as God used Pharaoh to lead his people out of Egypt, and into the promised land, he used Chairman Mao to establish the church in China. Quan waved his hand like a professor intent on making his students understand. Many Christians, he continued, gathered with honors from their universities, yet when the government found they were attending house churches, they were punished. The authorities assigned them to the worst jobs, often in rural areas of provinces far from their homes. They were forced to do menial labor. Christian high school students were not permitted to attend college or the university. They were assigned to heavy labor in remote provinces far from friends and families, yet God was at work. First he taught them humility, but then he used them as missionaries. No Christians had ever visited the remote villages where students were sent. When they went, they took the gospel. The spiritual harvest had been great. The gospel spread rapidly from one village to another. The many thousands of churches that began then are still there here today, and they have spawned many more. I love it. The lion used the dragon to thwart his own desires. Instead of killing the church, he spread it. Safely home, Randy Alcorn's book. Everything that happens 
While God may not be held responsible for much of it, nonetheless, it's all woven into the broad picture of history, which is, of course, all headed in one direction, namely the day of Christ's return. I know you've heard this illustration. You've probably seen this illustration before. And I'm going to use it again because it's such an incredible fitting illustration of any discussion of providence. And it fits in with the apparent Chinese saying, no man should judge a painting when he can only see the back of the canvas. All this is like, like an embroidery. When you look at the back side of this embroidered fan, it doesn't make any sense to you, I suspect, at all. It's an unrecognizable pattern. I hope you're not seeing any pattern in that. It's unrecognizable. However, when you turn it over, you can make out what was unrecognizable, and now suddenly it's recognizable with this word pushtan. Pushtan, by the way, is a small community in El Salvador, which members of the Flamborough Christian Reformed Church uh, went to help with rebuilding after an earthquake. Uh, quite a number of years ago, so this comes from there. This is a little bit a good example, kind of, of God's rule and providential care in history. It was like, it's like God is on this side. He's working on an embroidery, making all things new, making all things complete. At this time, all that we see on the underside, so to speak, is mess and the chaos of history, a history steeped in sin and evil. But we know there is order in this creation somewhere. We see it in the changing of the seasons. Even more than in the changing of the seasons, we see that there is order by grace because we are allowed to see the very center of the grand design. And at the center of the grand design is Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection and ascension that marked the completion of his work here on earth. And now the rest of the picture is being worked at from heaven. And one day, by faith, we will be allowed to see the beautifully completed work of God in the new creation. And so, indeed, all the things that happen in this world, rain, drought, war, death, illness, milestones, celebrations, all these things and many more are somehow all in the hands of the master designer who weaves them right into the tapestry of world history, the end of which has been predetermined, namely all things made new, the new heavens and the new earth. Chance, luck, are not at work in our world, but our Heavenly Father is. That's the incredible, wonderful comfort of the doctrine of providence. Every little piece of life fits into a grand puzzle, even though for us it may indeed seem like it's just chaos and it doesn't make sense at all. See, now we see, as 1 Corinthians 13 puts it, now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. And we shall see face to 
faith. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. The whole point of the doctrine of providence is that God is in control of all of history. So much so that he gave Jesus his son. And he cares for you and he cares for me. Nothing is being left to chance or luck or the stars being lined up right in the right constellation. The horoscopes can go. Which caused the Apostle Paul to say, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, we confess that you are the true creator. You are the Lord, the sovereign. You have all things in your hands. You look after this creation. You govern it and you lead it to the day when all things will be made new. We don't get that. We confess that. We don't fully understand that. Because all we see, O oh Lord, is chaos. We see the underside of the embroidery, so to speak. We don't see it complete yet. And so, Lord, there are times when we wonder how much of it indeed is in your hands. We wonder where you are. We wonder what it will look like. O oh Lord, haste the day when our faith will be sight, when we will see you as you are, when we see the beauty of the completed tapestry as we take our place on the new earth. O oh Lord, may it be that even then it is well with our soul. And as we await that day, O oh Lord, allow us and grant us true, deep faith in you, our Lord and our King. To you be the glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>